I've been praying about where to go next in our study of Scripture. And as I was considering that, I was thinking about the message of redemption, the story of God's love for a lost race and the story of salvation that really begins in Genesis chapter 3. And it goes all through the thread of the Old Testament, preparing us for the advent of Jesus Christ as the Gospels uh, open in the first century uh, in the time of Rome. And I thought about uh, all of those stories and how they weave themselves together. And when I say stories... I hope that you know me well enough by now to know I don't mean fiction. I mean literal, truthful, historical narrative. But they're still stories. And they're stories about a people that God has placed His affection upon and His love uh, to as He seeks through human history to make a name for himself and to prepare a people through whom Messiah will come. That promise is made to Adam and Eve uh, soon after the fall, as he says that uh, one from Eve's womb would be the one that would bring salvation and redemption to the human race. And so I thought it would be worthwhile over the next couple of months to kind of look at the Scriptures in a chronological way, the Old Testament in particular, to place the books in the order uh, uh, which they were written and to consider the, the way the story unfolds uh, chronologically, one by one throughout the, the centuries. And the oldest book in the Bible happens to be the book of Job. Some think that Moses was perhaps the author of it. It never claims an author. But uh, those who have done uh, studies of the text find similarities in Job and the writings of Moses, in particular the Psalm of Moses. We'll look at that on another Sunday. But... um, They believe that perhaps Moses wrote this, and the time that it takes place is not long after the flood, maybe uh, six or seven generations after the flood. In fact, in Chronicles, uh, you can sort of trace Job's lineage back to Noah, and it goes back about six or seven generations, and I've listed those there in uh, Roman numeral one, letter A. Job is an interesting fellow because uh, in the scripture he is presented as a man who is blameless, upright in character, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, we typically think of Job as a righteous man. Righteous is a... uh, (laughs) is a quantitative concept in Scripture, essentially. Righteousness means without sin. And Job was not without sin. He he was a man who, uh, like all of us, failed. But 
Blameless is another concept. Blameless means uh, not doing anything that you know is wrong. Uh, Living according to the revelation of the character of God and according to his, um, His will. And Job was a man who sought to live according to God's principles. He did not do the things that he knew was wrong. Uh, He sought to follow the Lord in uh, every aspect of his life. And he tells a little bit of his testimony as you get further into the book about some of the covenants that he has made with himself and with God concerning how he's going to live his life. And that lends to him the quality of blamelessness and uprightness. He's a man that you can count on, that you can trust. Uh, He's going to do what's right as far as he knows and understands it. And as a consequence of that, in his relationship with God, Job was a man who was greatly respected uh, among all the wise people of the area. He was the fellow that sat in the gate. Uh, We have um, a whole different concept of justice and judgment today, and you take your case to court, and uh, if you don't uh, hear what you want in the local courts and you can appeal, you might go to the district court, or you might uh, even eventually appeal your case to the Supreme Court, and that's, you know, this uh, citadel of justice uh, that... uh, is very austere and removed, but in those days, uh, the people, the men who sat in the gate of the city was kind of the meeting place. And if you wanted to have someone hear your case or give you counsel or guidance, you would go to the gate of the city and uh, you would present your problem or your dispute or you would seek guidance. And Job was recognized in the gate as the wisest of all the people. So that uh, the scripture tells us when he went to sit in the gate, everyone stood out of a show of honor and respect. And when he spoke, they all kept silent. No one interrupted him. And his word was usually the last word. Uh, because he was able to bring everything together and summarize it in a way that uh, was obviously correct. And people deeply respected Job as a consequence of that. And so we learn that Job is a favorite of God among all the people of the earth. Uh, Let me get back here to Job chapter 1, and I want to read you that verse because it's kind of an interesting verse. Um, The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. In other words, God's own testimony of Job is that Job is the number one guy on the whole planet that stands out among all the others as being the most upright, the most blameless, the most God-fearing, uh, the, the man who seeks God more than all the others. 
And God has favored him with wisdom and blessing. We learn that he has ten children, seven sons and three daughters. We learn that he has all kinds of cattle and herds and, and uh, sheep and camels and uh, all kinds of uh, wealth. And Job, in the terms of his day, is a very rich man. And God has blessed him in many, many ways. And so we have this opening drama, and this is one of the fascinating things about the book of Job, because it's like the curtain is drawn back, and we are allowed to look into the unseen supernatural world. And as the curtain is drawn back, we are given a picture of the angels coming to meet around the throne of God. And with them, uh, Satan comes and appears among them. You recall that Satan, uh, Lucifer, was at one time an angel. uh, Probably one of the three great uh, senior angels, along with Michael and Gabriel. And Lucifer, now Satan, the fallen one, appears with all the other angels. And uh, I'm tempted to chase all kinds of bunnies uh, as I go through this story. But um, I have heard it said regarding believers and, and demonic problems that Christians can't have demonic problems because Satan cannot ever dwell in the same place God does. Give that a little bit of a logical approach for a moment, will you? Where is God? He's everywhere, isn't he? So if God is everywhere, where would Satan be if he weren't somewhere? He's somewhere in the everywhere. He's always where God is. Um, And not only that, but he actually appears before the throne of God. And so for him to trouble Christians, it's not a big deal. Um, Even though we are indwelled and filled with the Holy Spirit, it does not mean that we cannot be uh, attacked or uh, opposed by demonic forces and powers. And Satan comes before God and he says, uh, God says, where have you come from? And he says, I've been walking around, I've been roaming the earth. Does that remind you of any New Testament imagery? For our adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, And what does he do? Uh, He is the accuser of believers who accuses them day and night before the throne. If he can't gain opportunity, uh, at least he comes up with reasons to discredit us in the presence of God. He's constantly accusing us. And so he takes this survey and he comes before God and he points out our faults and our weaknesses. And uh, not only does he point those out to God, he points those out to us. Uh, A lot of uh, us struggle with guilt and some from false guilt that we shouldn't even be dealing with. 
because uh, the enemy comes against us and accuses us of all kinds of things. And so this is what he's been up to. And uh, he says, I've, I've been roaming the earth. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? Now, that's an interesting question for God to ask the devil. It's almost like painting a target on his back. And Job says, well, there's no point, or or Satan says, well, there's no point in considering Job because you protect him. You put a hedge around him. I can't get near him. You've blessed him. You've given him all this wealth. You've given him a wonderful family. Uh, He's got so much good from you that there's nothing I could do to bring him down. And what he's basically accusing Job of is serving God for the gain that he gets. He says, Job only serves you because of what you've given him and because you've protected him. If you'll just give me a shot at him, I'll prove to you that Job's like everybody else and that he will deny you and turn away from you. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a chance. See what you can do. And so the hedge comes down, the covering comes off, and Satan attacks Job's family and his wealth. His children had a habit. uh, It says the sons on their day. Some have surmised that was their birthday. I don't know if that's true or not. But anyway, the sons on their day always threw a party. And they invited their other brothers and sisters. And they had this big party in their house uh, every time one of them had their day. And so uh, they were all together in the house. And a great wind came and attacked the four corners of the house at once. What kind of wind attacks four corners at once? Maybe a tornado, if you're right in the middle of it. It might get them all. And the house falls, and all ten children are killed, and their families. Everybody dies. And then marauders come and steal some of the herds, and another herd is struck by lightning and dies on the spot. And... It so happens that as the messengers come to Job, and of course Job has no idea that this conversation has taken place. But as the messengers begin to report to Job, the first one tells him about the death of his children. And he hasn't even finished speaking before the second one comes and talks to him about uh, the the lightning strike, and the next one comes before he's finished and talks to him about the 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 thieves uh, and bands of robbers coming and killing all the uh, herdsmen and taking the herds. And Job finds himself left with absolutely nothing, and yet his response is to fall to the ground and to worship God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this man is living up to his character. 
And so Satan shows back up at the throne. And the curtains pulled back again, and we see a conversation going on, and Satan says, well, if a man loses everything he has, that's not such a big deal. But if he loses his health, that's a big deal. So if Job were to lose his health and be in misery, then he would curse you. And so God says, all right, you can't kill him, but you can torment him. And Satan comes back to Job. Again, Job doesn't see any of this. We're taken into the inner sanctum, but Job does not know this is going on. And Satan comes back, and the next thing Job knows, he has become ill. He is deathly ill. He's very sick. And his skin has erupted in horrible boils. And they itch and they weep and they bleed. And they are so agonizing that he takes a potsherd. You know what that is? It's a, it's a bit of a broken clay pot. And he scrapes his skin with it. He's tra- Have you ever had an itch so bad your fingernails just didn't work? <laughs> you know, you, you wish you had something that you could really get in there and get to the itch. Job is so miserable that he's scraping his skin with this broken clay. And he has been banished from the city... And even his wife has believed that Job has done something wrong. This would not be happening to her husband if he had not sinned in some way. And so she suggests to him that since he's obviously dying anyway, go ahead and curse God and die. Get it over with. And so even his wife turns against him. She's the only member of his family left. And the city evicts him. He goes from sitting in the gate to sitting on the dung heap, the garbage pile outside the city. And he wishes he could die, and he can't. He's just in a miserable state. And about that time, three of his friends decide to pay him a visit. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Elihu comes with them, but he's not mentioned at first. And I think there's a reason for that. First of all, he's the youngest of all of them, and so he holds his peace till the end. And secondly... um, He has something profound to say that is going to go contrary to the other three. And it's like his speech is reserved for last. But Job's three friends come to him. And imagine this. They come to to see you in the hospital. Now, you know, when you're in the hospital, you want to be cheered up, right? You want people to come and encourage you. 
But they come in, and in essence, they say, Oh, my soul, you look so bad. You look horrible. You look like you could die any minute. I don't know what to say. I mean, how would you feel if somebody paid you a visit and that's what they had to say, you know? That's kind of what happens. They're on their way to see Job. He sees them coming. They see him uh, from a bit of a distance. And, and just the pitiful sight that they see before them, the Scripture says they take dust and throw it over their head uh, as a sign of mourning and of grief like he had died. And they come sit with him and they don't say a word for a whole week. They just sit there with him for a week. That was the symbol of seven days of mourning the dead. And Job's just, you know, sitting there waiting for somebody to say something and nobody says anything. They're mourning and grieving that Job is as good as dead. And so finally he speaks up. And once he breaks the silence, these three friends start in. Now, the last thing you need when you are in terrible, terrible condition is for someone to say to you, you know... You wouldn't be in this situation if you hadn't done something wrong. So what have you done wrong, Job? How have you sinned? What are you hiding from us that we've never seen? Has to be something. Because God blesses the righteous. And he punishes the wicked. And look at you. You must really have messed up. And so they kind of join his wife in their derision of him. And they begin to challenge him. And their purpose seems to be to drag out of him a confession. Job, you had to have offended God. Listen, these three friends, and Job might actually have been among them before all this happened, but these three friends are offering a popular viewpoint that if you do well, if you do good things, God will give you good things. And if you do bad things, God will punish you. You'll get sick, you'll have financial loss, you'll lose your job, you'll have all kinds of terrible experiences. Um, God will bring punishment to, to get your attention. And you know, that wasn't just the notion that people had a couple of thousand years before Christ. That's the notion that Christians hold many believers today and most of the world. 
most of the world and the religions of the world, including our own faith, are filled with people who believe that God blesses the people that do well and punishes the people that somehow or another sin. And if you have trouble in your life, it's because you've done something wrong. You've heard me say this before, but I've heard it so many times. Um, I'm getting to a point in my life where I've, I've told you before, I have this vision of, you know, growing old and getting white hair and uh, being this gentle, uh, loving, uh, kind, sensitive old man. And um, I, I think I'm getting ornery and cantankerous. Uh, I'm a little concerned about that. <laughs> Been talking about it. But my hair's not gray yet. It's not white. So you know, maybe I've got a little bit of time to, to get that rectified. But But anyway, you know... But I'm getting to an age where sometimes I have to bite my tongue. Because I, I want to say to people, when they say to me, what did I do that God is doing this to me? What have I done wrong? And, and I, 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 on the one hand, I wonder, well, would you like me to make a list? And on the other hand, I want to say, don't you know better than that by now? How long have you been in this church? How many times have you heard me say this? God does not bring punishment to people who do wrong necessarily, nor does He... Only bless the people who do well. God sends His Son and His reign upon the just and the unjust. And God, it is the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. Many times God blesses the sinful in hopes that their hearts will be humbled and broken and they will turn to Him who has been so good to them. And yet we try to figure out this formula and to the extent that we suffer, to that extent must be the depth of our sin. And Job's three friends keep hammering at this. They go around three times. All three of them give a speech, Job gives a rebuttal, then they start over. And then they go around a third time. It's like they just can't get him to admit. There's something in there, Job, we know there is. And if we hammer on you long enough, you're going to tell us. This is uh, crisis intervention. (laughs) They've got him in a room, except it's a dung heap. They've got him cornered, and they're going to hammer away until he fesses up. And he doesn't have anything to confess. He's just frustrated by them. And finally, Elihu, uh, toward the end of the book, along about chapter 35 or so, 
Elihu, the youngest one of all, he, he speaks up. And we find out that Elihu's been sitting there listening uh, to these older, wiser men have this discourse. And Elihu says, in essence, as you read his argument, I'm really upset with you guys, Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar. I'm really upset with you because our friend Job sitting here in all this misery, and you guys don't have a clue. You're supposed to be the wise guys, and you don't have a clue. You have no idea what's going on here. You have no answers. Clearly, you're wrong. But then he turns to Job, and he says to Job, the problem I've got with you, Job, is that you're making yourself to be more righteous than God. And he says, that can't be right. (laughs) You know, God has done mighty things. God has done great things. God is the creator. God is maker of heaven and earth. God has done amazing things. Things that we can only uh, wonder at. And you think that you're better than he is? You think you're more righteous than he is? You think you're on top of the heap? Well, you're on top of a heap, but it's not surpassing the righteousness of God. Job, what's wrong with you? And as Elihu is speaking, a thunderstorm comes up. You can see the drama of this. And this storm begins to roll in and the thunder is crashing. Hmm. Critters. And it's an opportunity to draw the analogy of God's voice like thunder and His mighty power. And suddenly... Out of the storm, God begins to speak. Now, this is an interesting intervention from God because up until now, Job has not heard God in a very long time. And friends, one of the things that is hard for us when we're going through deep water is when God draws back a bit to test our faith. And Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. And and we're tempted to make that quite literal. We walk by faith, not by things we can obviously see. But, But Paul is talking about evidence, about proof, about things that give us assurance, and that even includes the presence of God. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, but he did not say that we would always feel him. There are times, and so many uh, deeper life writers have talked about this, there are times when uh, in the journey to to that deeper life in God, in the path of the cross, 
God seems to be very far away. And we have to walk on by faith because we don't have a palpable sense of his presence. And Job has not heard a word from God. He has been silent through all of this misery. And so, suddenly, God speaks. And it seems like Job's heart has been softened a bit by Elihu's speech. And as Job considers where he is, I think he comes under conviction. And God begins to ask him, were you there when the foundations of the world were laid? Were you there when the mountains were raised up? Were you there when the boundaries were set for the oceans? Were you there when the creatures were made? Were you there? Did you do this? Did you put the stars in space, Job? And as God begins to lead Job into a contemplation of, his, of God's own majesty and glory, Job grows very silent. And you notice what he says in Job 40, verses 3 to 5, among other things, I lay my hand on my mouth. Have you ever had one of those experiences with God? You've been railing against Him. <laughs> You've been frustrated. You've been shouting out at Him. You're, you're not happy with what He's doing. And then He begins to reveal Himself. And all of a sudden, what have I been doing? I have no business talking like this in God's presence. And then a couple of chapters later, Job says, I have declared that which I did not understand. I have heard of you, God, by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What is Job saying when he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you? He's saying, my relationship with you has changed. Up until this time, O oh God, I have known about you. I have learned your rules i have learned your ways and and this was before moses and the commandments and all of this this is what was handed down from adam ultimately through noah ultimately through the righteous lines that followed noah job had heard of these things from god but he did not have a personal intimate relationship and knowledge of God up close. 
I want to take you briefly to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but you may want to read it later. In in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I have given up everything that I can know you, O Lord, that I can know you. I want to know the fellowship of your sufferings. I want to be conformed to the image of your death. I want to walk with you through the garden. I want to experience what you have experienced as much as I can. That I can understand who you are. To know you is more important to me than anything in the world. I want to know you. And those who are willing to press into God to come to know Him deeply. God will bless with a revelation of His presence. And of his person. Do you remember Paul's experience? Here's here's this great apostle, great evangelist, church planter, leads the mission team. He writes this letter to the Philippians expressing his heart's desire to know God. And do you remember Paul's experience of he tells us in the third person, but we, we know he's talking about himself. He says there was a person that was caught up into the third heavens. And he saw things that were too glorious to speak of. That were beyond comprehension as it were. And then he says, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh that I might not boast about those great things. And three times I asked God to take it away. And three times God said no. And by the way, if you care to look at the original closely, that term, thorn in the flesh, the actual Greek word, the actual Greek uh, sentence is an angel from the devil. I mean, it's a pretty powerful statement. An evil angel, a demon, was dogging Paul's steps and afflicting his body. And Paul came to the settled conclusion that if God's glory will be perfected in his weakness, he would rather glory in the Lord than to have this thing removed from him. And we learn that it was given to him that he might not boast or become proud and get out of fellowship with God over the glorious things he had seen. And in that heart and spirit, Paul says, I want to know what the sufferings of Jesus were like. Job is a hard book. 
because it takes us into the very uh, intimate heart of God and it poses for us the question, are you willing to do anything to know Him? Are you willing to allow anything in your life if you can come to a knowledge of God? And let me say to you that God cannot trust everyone with suffering. God's not going to put into our lives more than we can bear. And He knows the stuff we're made of. And if you're the kind of person that is going to cut and run at the first sign of trouble, God may hold back. But there's a price. And the price is that you will not have that intimate, deep relationship with Him that oftentimes only comes through suffering. And so the question is, are you willing to be tested? Are you willing to try God in the, the darkest hour of the night? Are you willing to get to know Him? And to really understand His nature. God is really unhappy with Job's three friends. He tells them, you better prepare a sacrifice and go and ask Job to prepare to pray for you because you're in trouble. You've spoken about things you don't know anything about. Meanwhile, Job has ten more children and his fortunes are restored by double. I found a little bit of amusement there. God didn't give him 20 kids. That's probably a blessing in and of itself. He got ten back, but no more. But everything else got doubled. He lives another 140 years and sees four generations of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I conclude with the paragraph at the end by saying trouble comes for many reasons. Trouble does come because we've sinned and behaved foolishly. Yes, that happens. We reap what we sow. And although God in His grace may uh, hold back the, the consequences, oftentimes we just simply have to pay the price for being stupid. And, and we reap that. Because we live in a fallen world with sickness and evil. This is just a risky place, friends. There's all kind of stuff out there. And uh, we are as much victim to that as anyone else. And, you know, the, the reality is, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, it's very difficult to talk to people who are going through hard times if we've never been through any. You know, if you've never, ever been in the hospital, it's hard to make a hospital visit with empathy. It helps if you've been there. I'm not suggesting everyone get sick and go to the hospital for a while, but, but I am telling you the truth. The people who are most effective are the people that have been there. And 
a lot of times we just fall victim, if you please, because we live in a fallen world. We get into trouble because we're followers of Jesus. And Satan absolutely hates us. There is a target on our back, and our front, and our head. And he comes after us with all of his fiery darts, and wiles, and lies, and uh, missiles. And, and he does everything he can to accuse us, and defeat us, and bring us down, and hurt us. That's what he does to Christians. If you want to follow Jesus, don't be surprised if the world hates you, Jesus said. It hated him before it hates you. It's just reality. And finally, we go through trouble sometimes because God allows it to accomplish deeper values and insight in our lives. God wants to bring us near to him in ways that nothing else would accomplish. And he wants to reveal himself to those whom he loves. So we have to be careful in our judgment of others, of ourselves, and even God. Sometimes we want to judge God, like Job, Elihu. You think you're more righteous than God, Job. Or we want to figure out why other people are suffering. Listen, you don't know why other people are suffering. If God's going to tell anybody, it's going to be them. But you don't have any idea. Judging is foolish. We need to love empathically those who are struggling. Let God deal with their heart with whatever's going on. That's not our place. The last thing people need is an, is a Zophar or a Bildad or an Eliphaz. Those guys stay away from me. I don't need you when I'm hurting. Send me somebody that cares and loves me and will hold my hand and pray for me and whatever. I need empathy. So does everyone. But only God can get to the heart of the matter. I hope this helps in gaining some understanding of Job and also some understanding of the ways that God deals with us and that we're not afraid of Him. He loves us. He's going to see us through to the end. He's going to bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. He has promised that. I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep what I've committed against that day. There's a hymn we sing. We're not going to sing it this morning because I preached my way all the way to 1030. But when peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with 
my soul. Is that your testimony? <laughs>